Uh, open to Ecclesiastes, the book of depression, and we're going to go into chapter 3. Yeah. We're just getting started, too. So, like, we told you you're going to get your money's worth out of what's going on here. No, we're going to have fun with it. So we know the end of the story, right? So it's a little different when you know the end of the story. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Try not to sing this as we read this. For everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's hearts, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Uh, we've been doing, obviously, the series in Ecclesiastes, and it's all going to be the same tone, right? Like the first couple of verses of the entire book, Solomon gives away the punchline. Like he gives away everything that he's going to be talking about for the next 12 chapters, which is basically like vanity, vanity, all is vanity, if it's only about life under the sun. And this is the difference with everything, with how we interpret everything, with how everything is to be read and looked at that Solomon gives us is the difference between just life going on without anything else inside the box, meaningless, purposeless, or life with the one outside the box, over the box. So this is all about really two perspectives, one, what it looks like life without God and what it looks like life with God right, which is the difference between meaning in life and meaninglessness in life. And so this is going to follow that, that same theme. And today we get a popular poem uh, from Solomon. Some of you were singing it. When the birds came out and did this, I don't know what year it was, but it was basically, this is where they took it. I think that they sang everything in these, in these 10 verses or first eight verses with maybe the exception of six words there. Um, so almost in its totality. Um, but, the, but the way that that was to be interpreted, I believe the way that they intended it when they sung it, was to say, hey, life's going to come at you and sometimes it's going to hit you hard, but just remember that it's, that it's only for a moment. If you hang on long enough, things are going to turn around, like things are going to get better, okay? And, th and that's really not what Solomon's intention is here. Uh, when he writes this poem and gives it to us. We can basically, and I've already given this away, just mentioned it, read this poem in two different ways, okay? We can read it from inside the box, which is without God, um, in which life is just chance, 
It's just chaos. It's just randomness with times and seasons. It's, it's, life is something that just happens to us, okay? That's life without God. And, and if we read it this way, in this case, the poem reveals the great absurdity of life because each activity listed here cancels out the other. Did you notice that? It cancels each other out. There's 14 pluses in this list, and there's 14 minuses. And when you add that up, what do you get? Zero. You get zero. So with this view, life is just a big, fat non-plus, okay? Which is how most people live it, which is how most people approach it. But we can also take it from the second one, which is obviously life above the box, outside the box, with God, where there's then ultimately uniformity and intentionality and meaning and purpose in all that life brings, all its times, all its seasons, because God is in all of it, producing something eternal and altogether glorious. Again, it's easy for us to think of the the atheist when we look at some of these texts, when we look at some of Solomon's writings, um, we can think of the atheist when considering this kind of a worldview, being chance, random, and out of control. But there exists a large number, a large number of Christians that unfortunately also hold a worldview that resembles atheism. We actually refer to it as practical atheism. You ever heard of that? Christians can live as though they're atheists. If you were to ask the average American if they believe in God, and it's some ridiculous amount still, I believe, in the United States, some plus 80% uh, would answer yes. If you followed up that question with the question, what do you believe about God, that's where things would start to get a little funky. That's where you'd start to have some variations and some discrepancies would definitely surface with, with what people believe about God. If you were to ask somebody, is God in control or sovereign? And I want you to hear that word because I'm gonna use that word a lot today, sovereign, which means that God is all powerful, unlimitedly powerful, is that a word? That's right, right? I'm trying not to add a syllable. And and also uh, unlimitedly um, um, in control of all things. If, If you were to ask, The average person is God in control over world events. Most people would probably say, yeah, yeah, I'm okay with that. I agree with that. They would agree most likely that God is in control of like sporting events, like he helps their team win. Or or you know what I'm saying? Like you laugh because you know it's true. You do the same thing, don't you? Promotions at work. You know what I mean? Like God's over, over good fortunes that come my way, or, or near misses, like close calls, like improved health conditions, or recoveries, etc. Like people are, are cool with God being in control of that, but if you ask those same people, does God control natural disasters? Or the Holocaust? Or 9-11? Most people would say, absolutely not. Some of you are saying that right now, absolutely not. Not. He had nothing to do with those things. In 2005, and if you haven't noticed already, this is going to be a tough sermon today, so dig in. Like, if you need coffee, go grab some more, but we're going to dig in a little bit here. 
In 2005, there was a sociology professor from the University of Notre Dame. His name was Christian Smith. And he conducted um, a, a, a study of a group of Christians made up mostly of 20 and 30 year olds that be, and, and, and he coined this phrase that best described what he gathered from that study as far as what their working theology is, what their active belief in God is. And that phrase is moralistic therapeutic deism. Has anybody heard of that? Moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic meaning God wants people to be good, nice, and fair. That's what he wants. Therapeutic meaning the goal is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. That's the goal. And deism, which means God isn't necessarily directly involved in their life except for when he's needed to resolve, fix, or supply them with something they need. In, in other words, God's more like a sky fairy that just like um, kind of shows up to hand out goodies. And when he's not handing out goodies, like he's, he's doing something else. Even though the people holding this belief claim to believe in God, it is a worldview or a belief that resembles much closer an atheistic one than a Christian one. Because it is one that still leaves you largely just going on about life inside the box, chance, karma, your own works, randomness, all those things, and God just makes an appearance every once in a while. But pretty much we're on our own, and everything is just, is just kind of unwinding the way that it's naturally. And I'm going to go out on a limb and claim that this is, is not just a, a dominant theological worldview held by 20 and 30-somethings. This is also a dominant working theological worldview, regardless of one's age, in our day and age, in the United States of America. This is what most, quote-unquote, evangelicals or Christians believe. Now, why in the world do I tell you this? Why do I lead off with all of this? Well, because moralistic therapeutic deism is not new, it's old. It just has a new, a new title to it now. It's just got a, a new shiny coat of paint on it. Just like everything else in the book of Ecclesiastes, this too is nothing new under the sun. It has always been a pair of glasses that people have looked through to view God and to view themselves and to view the world around them in an attempt to make sense of the nonsense. If your working belief is through those lenses, mankind is still largely, ultimately alone. And he's alone because God really isn't in control of everything. He just makes appearances every once in a while to give us a gift. And so Solomon takes up his pen to write to remind Israel and to remind us that God isn't just the God of our favorite team winning or of prosperity or of close calls or of healings, but that God is the God of everything. Every single thing that exists, he is the God of. Every season, every time in life. We're going to see this today in two parts. Part one, the extent of God's sovereignty. We're going to see in verses 1 through 10, which is his power, his control, how far it extends, what all it consists of. And then, and then two, the beauty of God's sovereignty is going to be seen in 11 through 15. Okay? Now, I have to say this before we text this thing up. I'm going to teach some things today that may bother you. Um, I'm going to teach some things today that may trouble you, that may scare you, 
that may offend you. Don't be surprised if you find yourself at some point initially objecting to some of the statements that I make today. It's normal. It's normal for it to happen. Believe me when I say, and, and this is what I really want, I want you to believe me when I say that my intention is not to push you away from God with the things that I am going to teach today. It is to draw you into him, closer, nearer. Some of you after hearing this this morning will say that's not the God I believe in. Or I refuse to believe in a God like that. I did. Uh, the first time I was ever um, led to the matrix of God's sovereignty. I was a young kid smoking a cigarette on a parking block after church and some dude walked up to me and started talking about the complete sovereignty of God in all things in my life and this was my immediate response. It's not the God I believe in. And I got up and moved my cigarette smoking somewhere else away from that toxic man. And my problem was ultimately not with him or what was being said. It was that I had an idea of God that I didn't want to relinquish. And I didn't even want the Bible to correct it. I wanted to hold on and protect my idolatry, that God that I had fashioned for myself without any competition, without any opposition, because I like that God that I made. I agree with him fully. That's the thing with idolatry, isn't it? We do it because we can fashion something that we can agree with completely. But our Bibles don't allow us to do this, and I would hope and I would pray, and this has been my prayer for you guys all week long, is that you have, you have this thing in, in you, this desire, this passion to need to know regardless of what it costs you or what it feels like, who God is. Who he actually is. Who this, this amazing being is that we worship, that we rely on and depend on every day. And you know what? There's a lot of information he's given us. We can know a lot about who the God is that we worship, who the God is that came and performed a rescue mission on our souls. There's a lot of information there. And my prayer is that we would be honest as we read our Bibles. There's nothing to be afraid of. Yeah, it may hurt a little, it may sting a little, it may cut you a little bit to hear some of this or see some of this. But ultimately, there's blessing to be had. There is great blessing to be had in knowing more and more who God really is. And so today's going to do a little bit of this. Verse 1, let's go. Wait, where am I? The wind got it. For everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. First of all, this line is the theme of everything that's going to follow in this poem. This is, this is basically telling us what the rest of the poem's about, okay? So, for everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Question, according to who? Says who? Chance, randomness, chaos, everything just running its natural course? No, there is a time and there is a season for everything, definitely. Because there is someone who definitely appoints the times and the seasons. We're going to see this again when we get down to verse 10. This is going to be restated. 
So let's look at what God has appointed under heaven. Verse 2, a time to be born and a time to die. Uh, time to be born and a time to die. No one has ever decided, as far as I know, when they would live. I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure that hasn't been done. There's a lot of stuff that has been. That's not one of them. I don't think anyone's chose what parents they would have. I don't think anyone's chose what country they would be born into or what part of the country they would be born into. None of that is ours. And this is staggering to think about considering that nothing dictates the overarching trajectory of our lives and where they go and how they go than these three factors do right here. Have you ever thought about that? How much this plays in, how much this, these three things factor into what ultimately ends up coming out of your life. They're not ours to decide. Whose are they then? Well, they could be chances, they could be lucks, they could be non-luck, or, or they can be gods. Same with our death. And some of you, you may tell me like, oh yeah, but, but hang on, like I eat right. You know what I mean? I exercise right. I've made good life decisions. I was super careful in life. I didn't do stupid things. Surely I have a say in how long I live. Job doesn't think so. Job says in 14.5, man's days are determined. And the number of his months is with you, talking to the Lord. And you, O Lord, have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. It's pretty clear that he cannot pass. God has determined a time for each of us to be born and for each of us to die. And either our Bible's right, either that's who the God of the Bible is, or it's wrong. He goes on to say a time to plant and a time to pluck up what's been planted. And yeah, God has placed laws of nature, clearly, around us that determine what we can grow, where we can grow, and when we can grow it. Um, this is extremely frustrating to my wife, who's, who's like a major, major green thumb. She would plant her entire life away if she could, but she can't. You know why? Because she lives in Sun River at 4,500 feet. What is this, a zone three? Is that what we call it? Where everything freezes. You have to have like a really nice greenhouse in order to get a head start on things, and, and even then, it doesn't do what it would do in other parts of the country. Why? Because there are laws that have been put in place, that have been determined as far as planting and reaping. There's a time to kill, verse 3, and a time to heal. This is where some of you are going to want off the bus. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. God determines when someone is to be killed and when someone is to be healed. Does that bother you? I mean, you could say God determines when someone's to be healed and we all go, amen. Like, that's a rad thing. And then it's like, and when someone's killed and it's like, oh, that too. Not, not just the good thing, but also the bad thing. We're told that if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground apart from the father doing it, some of your older translations inserted knowing it, but it is not the father knowing it. It says apart from the father, then how much more is he invested in when we fall? Right? Jesus says that we're of more value 
than they are to the Father. When a tragic act occurs, when someone dies too soon, we cannot say, God did not allow this, or God did not approve this. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. This is heavy. I know this is heavy, but most true things are. I don't even know where to start when it comes to examples of this in our Bibles. So let's just, let's just pull out, I think this is a good one, 1 Kings chapter 22. Do you remember that story? Ahab, evil king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because they were split into two sections at that time, Israel was, right? And then we had this place called, I think it was called Gilead, that was owned by uh, the Syrians, and then there was a little prophet named Micaiah, not Micah, Micaiah. And so Syria and Israel had been feuding for years, but they were kind of in a, in a stalemate at that point, and they were each just sitting on property, like each other's property. And so Ahab one day gets up, and he goes to Jehoshaphat, right, the, the king of Judah, and he says, you know what, this dude's been sitting on Gilead for a long time, and it's ours. It's rightfully our real estate. What do you say you and I form an alliance and we go up and we just get what's rightfully ours? And Jehoshaphat's like, sounds like an awesome idea. Count me in, right? And so they, they partner together. But Jehoshaphat says, what I, what I think you should really do before we actually go out and do this is just pull together your prophets and let's just see what they have to say about it. So Ahab pulls together all the prophets. He brings them all before him. He asks them, what's going to happen if we go to take this land from Syria? And the prophets are like, oh, it's, it, it's gold, it's done, it's yours. Like, no problem, everything's gonna be fine, you're gonna have victory, you're gonna come back, like, no problem. And he's like, okay, thank you. And then Jehoshaphat's like, do you have another prophet? Like one that might have something different to say? And he's like, yeah, but I do have this one dude, but he's a jerk, like I hate him. Um, his name's Micaiah, and the reason I hate him is because every time the dude speaks, like comes before me, he says things like that are mean to me. He says things I don't like to hear, right? And Josephat's like, like, go get that dude. Like, bring that dude over here. So, so here comes Micaiah, is brought in, and, um, and Ahab's like, okay, here's what's going to happen. We're going to go up and take this land from Syria. What do you say? And Micaiah says, well, did you ask your other prophets? And he goes, yeah, I did. And he says, well, what did they say? And he said, they said that we're going to have victory, like the whole thing's a done deal. And Micaiah goes, well, there you go then. And Jehoshaphat goes, no, dude. Like, what do you really think? And he says, I have heard from the Lord that when you go into battle, you will die that day to Ahab. And Ahab's like, see, this dude always has something bad to say to me, like every single time, you know? And so Ahab gets mad. I know this is a long story, but it's worth it. Ahab gets mad. Um, and he basically sends Micaiah off to be jailed. And he says, I'll deal with him when I come back from from war. And as Micaiah's being yanked off to jail and locked up, he looks back at Ahab and he says, if you come back today from battle, I have not heard from God. I have not heard from God. And he goes off and Ahab goes off. So Ahab gets smart and he thinks, you know what, just in case, like I don't like this dude, I don't like what he had to say, I don't even believe him, but just in case there's something to this, I'm going to go ahead and thwart the plans of God. Okay, so I'm going to dress up like a normal soldier. I'm going to ride in a common chariot. Nobody's going to know who I am. Nobody's going to be able to target me. Like, there's no way. Like, I'm going I'm to I'm one-up whatever might happen. 
okay? And so he goes out as a normal soldier in a normal chariot. And this is the verse that we find in 1 Kings 22, 34. Listen to this. A certain man, <clears throat> Syrian, drew his bow at random, at random, and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. And he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and carry me out of battle, for I am wounded. And he died. Random. How does that happen? A dude just decides to close his eyes almost and pull back his bow and hits a dude in a moving chariot in an area where there's actually basically no room to have anything penetrate, and it does. Chance, coincidence, bad luck, right? No, this is, this is God. This is how God functions. This is how God does things all the time around us, intentionally, in ways that only God can. We have to conclude that that arrow was a sovereign arrow directed by a sovereign God. There's an appointed time to kill, just like there's an appointed time to heal. And they both belong to the Lord. There's a time to break down. There's a time to build up. There's a time for desolation and for population. And there's a time for vacancy. And there's a time for occupation. How many nations have you read about in your Bible that were stacked like just powerful, reigning, ruling. Nobody could rival them or even think about messing with those nations. Gone. Gone. No longer exist. Nowhere to be found. Where are they? They're used by God for his purposes and then discarded. Discarded. They were only ever great or built up because of him, and they are no more because of him. Assyria, not Syria, which I just spoke about, but Assyria once thought that they were awesome because they came against Israel, the nation of God, and handled business against them. But we're told in Isaiah chapter 10 that they were only able to do it because God caused them to. It says in Isaiah chapter 10 that this dude, the king of Assyria, didn't even, wasn't even paying attention to Israel. He wanted nothing to do with them, and that God came and put in his heart to have a problem with Israel and go attack them. Crazy. It's crazy some of the stuff we read in our Bible. But either it's true or it's not. Either that's how God operates or it's not how God operates. In other words, they're a tool too. The nations are a tool of God used for his, purpose, his perfect purpose and plan. Guys, I guess women we can include in this so I don't get in trouble. Ha have you ever had your chainsaw uh, look up at you while you're using it and, and say, look at how rad I am. Look at how awesome I cut this wood. Has that ever happened? I mean, sober, right? No, it's, ne it's never happened. It hasn't happened. It doesn't happen. You're the one who got it out. You're the one who put oil in it. You're the one who put gas in it. You're the one who fixed the choke. You're the one who pulled the cord. And you're the one who moves that saw in order for it to perform that which it performs. It's you, not the saw. And it's the same thing with God and everything that he's created. 
They are his tools at his disposal for his perfect purposes. Every single one of them. Four, a time to weep, a time to laugh, that which causes us to cry as well as laugh, both given by God. Both emotional human responses to human experiences. One that's enjoyable, one that's not so much so, both appointed by God. Listen to Job 2.15. Listen to what he says. Shall we receive good things from God and shall we not receive evil? That's heavy duty. That's, that's, that question has an implied answer. He doesn't, he doesn't not know what the answer is. He knows what the answer is. He's making sure we know what the answer is. Moralistic therapeutic deism rejects this. No, God only brings us good things. That's God. Anything bad that happens, not God. Not true. Not true. What Job is saying here is it's astounding because he's saying that every single horrible thing that befell him in his life was directly appointed by God. All of it. He lost his land, he lost his house, he lost his cattle, he lost his livelihood, he lost his kids, he lost his wife, he lost his health, nothing left. And he's saying, you did this. He knows that God is behind it all. And Job somehow is okay with God still because he continues to trust him. He continues to trust him. He trusts what God can see, not what he can see. He trusts what God knows, not what he knows. Isaiah 45, I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and I create darkness. I make well-being. Everybody hit it. Amen. And I create calamity. And I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all things. All things. Does your theology allow for this? I pray that it does, because it's, it's a biblical one. This is the God we worship. Someone might say, yeah, but then Jesus came, and he was way nicer than the Father was. <laughs> no, nah, they're, they're the same. They're the same. There, 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 there was never like a conference table or a deliberation room in heaven where they sat and argued out how things were going to go down. They are one. In fact, the reason Jesus got strung up and murdered is because he claimed to be one with the Father. They are one. Wherever one has gone and done something, there the other is. All in perfect agreeance. They completely agree. Amos 3 says, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Natural disasters. It's heavy. What does that produce when natural disaster does come to a city? It produces sorrow, it produces tears, it produces weeping. There's a time to weep. But praise God, there's also a time to laugh too. We need that. We need that. The time to mourn and a time to dance goes along with this. It's a time to pull down the shades and snuggle up with darkness and loss. But praise God, there's also a time to party There's a time to celebrate, and I'm not talking about getting high or getting drunk. There's a time to release joy, to wallow in the joy that God has given us. We see Jesus experience both these things, don't we, when he came as one of us. 
Verse 5, there's a time to cast away stones and there's a time to gather stones together. People think, commentators think maybe a little differently about what exactly this means. I'm just going to go generic with it. I'm going to go with construction. There's a time, uh, there's a time to build and a, and a time to demolish. There's a time to construct and a time to destruct. God appoints both these things too. And how can we under, possibly understand this and his ways in this? You know what I mean? How can we possibly understand why he chooses to demolish this structure and let this one stand? How many of you have been through Detroit Lake since last year's fire? I mean, my wife finally did a few months ago. And it was just, it, it like never ceases to amaze me when you go through a place after a fire. It makes no sense. You want to talk about randomness? You want to talk about chance? Just go through a, a, a fire zone afterward. So we're going down the road, and here's a house. And here's a house. And here's not a house. And here's a house. And here's not a house. And it's like, why? What does that mean? Like, it's the most bizarre-looking thing for that to happen. Is it just chance, just luck of the draw? Or is it all purposed? Is there meaning there somewhere? Is there intention? Are there reasons? It's weird stuff to see. There's a time to embrace, and there's a time to refrain from embracing this is speaking of affection. This is speaking of uh, basic expressions of love that we have one to another. But it's even talking about intimacy, deep intimacy, and sex. God appoints times and seasons for all of that too. There's an appointed time for it and an appointed time for its absence. There's times to light a big fire in a fireplace, and there's times to let the fire die down. Some of you men are like, boo. It's true. Needs to happen. We may tend to think that surely God stays out of this part of our lives. Surely he has nothing to do with this part of our lives. No, our sexuality is not random chance either, but it's appointed too. Well, where do you get that in the Bible? I don't know. Genealogies? The names that have to be where they are? From the people that gave them to them? Even the unsavory ones who were conceived in unsavory ways, in God's genealogy, God appoints this too. See, this whole, this whole thing, if you haven't noticed, realized yet, like goes a lot deeper than we give it credit for as far as God's involvement. Let's keep going. Verse 6, a time to seek and a time to lose. There's a time to keep and a time to cast away. There is a time to pursue something and there's a time to cease pursuit of something does anybody else have the Bermuda Triangle in their house somewhere you know what I'm saying I do I don't know how the heck I do it still because my kids aren't even at the house so that's not not an excuse for me anymore like they took something they shouldn't have and they didn't put it back like I can't even do that anymore I don't know where stuff goes and there's a time when you just need to stop trying to figure out where it went there's a time to hold on to something and there's a time to let it go. In other words, there's a time to go to a garage sale and there's a time to have one. Me and my wife need to learn more how to have garage sales. We know how to go to them. Now we have nowhere to put everything. This goes to different levels. Good fortunes, material accumulation, we just talked about that, financial gain, pay raises, pay cuts, job loss, investments failed, stock market crashes, 
All of it's his. And when it happens, it isn't chance, it isn't bad luck, it's him. He controls all of it. Seven, a time to tear and a time to sow. This is the idea of separating and and mending, whether it's figurative or literal. It could speak of relationships, but most likely this speaks of, again, loss and gain at a certain level. When a loved one was lost in Jewish culture, a garment was torn. It was ripped. It was destroyed, right? When a new life was brought forth in that same culture, a garment was made, mended. Seasons, all appointed by God. There's a time to keep silence and a time to speak. This one's a toughie. This one's a toughie. Who appoints the mouth? And I think you and I would say clearly we do. Like I've gotten in enough trouble throughout my lifetime with this thing. I know it's me, right? And, And this is true, but so does he. He does as well. Do we think that he is strong enough to shut the mouth of lions but not men? Do we think that he's powerful enough to make a donkey talk but not us? Is it a stretch for us to think that he can keep us silent when he wants to and also make us sound off when he wants to? It shouldn't be. Psalm 139, verse 4, David says, Even before a word's on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You know it fully. You know it completely. And you know every possibility of what may come out of that word that is not even yet on my tongue. All of it. Which means that God is filtering first. You ever thought about that? God's filtering first. God is evaluating potential causes and effects first. Proverbs 16.1, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. You and I will determine all kinds of stuff within us when it comes to what we want to communicate and how we want to communicate it, but that which surfaces or doesn't surface is determined ultimately by the Lord for his purposes. He uses every bit of it for his purposes. I want to make this clear real quick before I move on. God is not the author of sin. Our Bibles tell us that clearly. But because sin exists, God uses every bit of it for his purposes. Does that make sense? It's the easiest way I know how to say it. Okay. Verse 8. There's a time to love and a time to hate. Hate. God's appointed a time for us not to love somebody even though he's clearly taught us to love everybody. Yeah, uh, because we don't love everybody like we should. We don't. So he uses that too. There's a time for opposition and a time for unity. There's a time for strife and a time for harmony. There's a time for war and there's a time for peace. Oppression, tension, power trips, takeovers. Whether it's at a local level or a global level, God has his finger on the button of war and on the button of peace. God is standing behind and above it all when it happens and when it does not happen. Whether it's a ruler or an emperor or a king or the president of the United States, God turns the heart of man or woman whichever way he chooses to perform that which he ordains. It's what God does. If peace, then he puts into their heart peace. If war, then he puts into their heart war. Again, this is what we see in Isaiah chapter 10 with the king of Assyria. He closes out the poem by concluding in 9 and, nine and 10. 
What gain is the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Again, this is the same thing we're already talking about. Who's ordained these seasons? Who's ordained these times? Is this something that's just randomly happening, that God wound up the clock to and then stood back and it's all just unwinding on its own, everything falling where it falls? Or is Solomon reminding us again, there is an appointer of the appointed times and seasons? That's what he's telling us. These are the things God has given man to be busy with in life. God has ordained these things. And I know that some of you might be thinking, dude, like, just stop. Like, you're ruining everything right now. You know, I'm not having fun anymore. You're messing up everything I believe right now. And and the truth is, like, I hope so. Um, I I really do. Um, Because if you have believed, like the atheist or the moralistic therapeutic deist, that God set everything in motion, watched everything fall apart, and then retired to his easy chair, in the back room while he's waiting for you to be a good person, all the while you attempt to navigate a world of meaningless chance and randomness, then yes, yes, I am trying to mess up everything that you believe right now. If you believe that God is only partially sovereign, unable to perform or prohibit certain events, only able to be God over good things and not bad, then yes, I am trying to mess up everything that you believe right now. See, God is much bigger than you ever thought he was. God is much closer than you ever thought he was. God is much more active than we ever thought he was. God is much more to be feared than we ever thought he was. God is far more glorious and purposeful than we ever thought he was. And it's because he's continually and actively working all things together into a fullness of eternal meaning and worth through his intricate and intimate involvement in everything. How many of you know Romans 8, 28 by heart? How many of it, how many of you have that for a favorite verse? How many of you have that on your refrigerator? It's like one of the best verses, right? It it feels right. It reminds us of something that we need to be reminded of. Well, everything that we're talking about right now, everything that we're talking about this morning, the light that we're looking at it in, is the reason why Romans 8.28 was written. We know that all things, all things, work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. This is what we're talking about here is the reality of that. In everything, on every level. And because of that, it's not bad news that God performs all these things, even things we don't think he should perform. It's good news. It's a comfort that God is fully in control, working a definite purpose out in eternity with everything that's being done. It's not just random. It's not just meaningless. Things will not just be lost or go unnoticed. Everything will be redeemed and accounted for in his beautiful tapestry in the end. All of it. This is good news. That God has a grand plan, which you and I are not the centerpiece of. He is. Are you guys cool with that? You are not the center of the Bible story. And you are not the center of God's plan. He is. His glory is. That which he's determined to do from eternity past all the way into eternity future is what he's doing. 
That's what he's all about. And you and I just get to be a part of it by his grace. We get to enjoy it by his grace. It's an amazing thing that we've ever even been let into this thing. He didn't need us, but it pleased him to form us and say, I'm going to call you friend. I'm going to call you son. I'm going to allow you to come and experience everything that I'm doing with me. That's pretty rad. And he's working it all for the good of his purpose right now. My grandma used to hook latch. No, not hook latch. What was that, honey? Hook latch. Something like that. You know, she had one of those, like, mats, like those mesh mats. Um, and it just had, like, the threads coming out the bottom of it, you know. And, um, and so, like, she was always doing that. We would go stay, like, summers at her house because my parents both worked. In, I don't even know why I'm going into this. And so, anyway, we had to stay at Grandma's house in Bishop, okay. And Grandma just, like, constantly did this hook latch thing. She was always doing it. And so when she would get up to go to the bathroom or get up to get a drink or get up to make dinner or whatever, she would lay this thing upside down. And so all I would ever remember is like walking through the room from the kitchen to the bedroom and back and forth and looking over and seeing this mat with a a weird string coming out here of one color and then a few strings coming out here of another. Like it looked like random, like it looked horrible. I thought for years like grandma needs to stop doing this. Like she she doesn't know what she's doing. She's not very good at this, right? Because I was looking at the bottom of this thing. You guys know the ones I'm talking about, right? And the bottom made no sense. It just looked like random chaos. And it's so easy for you and I to get caught up in, because we are underneath, just the bottom of this piece that's, that, that's being made, that's being completed, that's being constructed. And just think, gosh, that doesn't make sense. That thread that just came through has no business being there. It makes no sense at all. That's all we're seeing is what we're seeing from the bottom. But there's this whole other deal going on. I remember one of the first times I flipped one of those over and went, whoa, this side does not look like that side. This side looks way different than that side. I actually see an image. I can actually make out definition. There's clarity. There's colors that make place in their sense. Like there's intentionality. Like you are, you are actually pretty good at this. You are actually pretty. This is what we're talking about here. This is what we're talking about in Ecclesiastes. Is that if you and I just get caught up in the bottom of the needlework, and that's all we ever look at, there is nothing more, it's all going to look wrong. And the way that we interact with it, and the way that we bump up against it, and the way that we do life with it is going to be wrong too. But if we know that there was someone above that needlework, that the top part of that needlework looks nothing like the bottom, we're going to look at, we're going to interact with, with, we're going to live within a completely different mindset because we know that it's all intentional. It all has meaning. This is really what Solomon is bringing out here for us. I'm going to really quick, because this has been super long, yeah, I am the long-winded guy. Um, but I can't help it. Like, I don't know how to take, like, a couple verses in here. And then, like, I, I feel like we need to really kind of uh, 
you know, pull a chair up and um, just do some business in this book. It's only 12 chapters, so, um, but we're almost there. But what I want to do now is move to the, the conclusion of Solomon's, um, uh, the conclusions he's come to concerning the beauty of God's sovereignty and everything that he just wrote about. And we're, I'm going to bullet point these for you. I'm going to, like, this will be quick, okay? And so 11 through 15, all right? Um, verse 11 basically says this, the full reveal of what it is that God's been doing through every appointed time and season of our lives is only able to be absorbed and wondered at in eternity. In eternity. This is not the main event here, guys, and we forget that. This life right now, that which we're living in, that which we're surrounded by, is not the main event. The main event is, is coming. The thing is that we cannot take the reality, the full reality of what it's all going to be, right, right now. So God has chosen to hide it. He's chosen to keep the top of the loom, the top of the needlework from being revealed to us yet. We have to trust him. We have to trust that he's completing that peace. Eternity is the main event. It's the final complete work of God's tapestry. It is there. It is not here. Verses 12 and 13 basically say, for those of us who have faith and understand that God is fully, completely, utterly in control, we can live in the midst of the chaos and do it pretty well. We can do it well. We can do good. We can have peace. And we can give thanks like the apostle could in all circumstances because of who we know and who we trust in right now. We can confidently and assuredly stick to our marching orders of following after Jesus through the battle zones of life. See, you and I get to know through faith that the random needlework that we see appearing on the bottom of the mat is most assuredly adding up to something glorious and purposeful. And therefore, we don't need to spiral. We don't need to lose it. We don't need to despair. We trust. And when, when, when we trust, we're okay. We're okay. We can also enjoy what we put our hands to, that which we work for, labor for, knowing full well that none of it is in vain. None of what's going on, none of what we're doing right now is in vain. It all has meaning. It all has purpose. And to do this, to enjoy life and what we do and how we do it is not bad. It's good. It's good. It's okay for Christians to enjoy life. We don't have to walk around like we're at a perpetual funeral. We worship the risen Savior. We can walk around, and I'm not saying be fake either, because that's equally as disgusting when you look at it. But I'm saying that we have every reason to walk around and have joy and have pleasure in everything that God has made for us to enjoy and have pleasure in. There's no reason we shouldn't be. We should take advantage of that, and we should be giving God thanks for every single bit of it, because it's good. God enjoys giving that to us. It's also, what this means, is that it's okay to sleep during the storm on the boat. That's also what 13 and 14 is telling us. It's okay for you and I, as we look around and everything's falling apart, and catastrophes are happening, and calamities are happening, and weeping is happening, like, like life is going on, right, just all the time. It's okay for you and I, because we trust the one who is, who is finishing the work on the top of the needlework, it's okay for you and I to sleep on the boat while the storm is raging. 
It's okay for you and I to do what Jesus did and kind of got scolded at by his disciples. This was not a little storm. This was not a little wave. This was not a little bit of rocking going on. It says in Matthew that the waves were coming over the top of the boat and beating down onto the boat to where it actually started beating the boat apart. And Jesus is sleeping. Now, I've seen like heavy sleepers in my life, but I've never, I've never seen one that can sleep that heavy. And yet Jesus is. Not a care in the world. Jesus, get up like we're going to die. Oh, you have little faith. What does that mean? It means that when we have faith in the one who is over all things, the seas, the waves, the storms, we can sleep during a storm. We can sleep during the chaos, meaning we can rest well in him. We don't need to get bent out of shape. We don't need to get tripped out. We don't need to walk around pulling our hair out with anxiety and stress going, the sky's falling, the sky's falling. I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe that's happening. Like a lot of Christians live that way. Followers of Jesus don't need to. You may sleep on the boat because you know the one who controls the seas. It's okay. Finally, 14 and 15, nobody can mess up or ruin or sidetrack what God has done or is doing or is going to do. Nobody. Nobody. So relax. Again, so many Christians go, get so bent out of shape by what's going on here or what's going on there or who's, you know, getting strong and powerful. Like, it, it's God's. Nobody's going to mess up the narrative that God has already created. It's a perfect narrative. And it's an eternal narrative. Even when it's something that's camouflaged to be bad, we can know that it's God's good, perfect purpose. He's the one who's sovereign over all of it. Not man, not nations, not financial woes, not health disasters, not tragedy, not death. Those are all real things. But God is over all of them, and his narrative is best. His script is best. Without a doubt, the most horrific, and I'll close with this. You're like, gosh, thank you. It's about time. Um, the most horrific, seemingly random, agonizing disaster that has ever occurred in world history is when the Son of God was pinned to the cross. Have you ever placed yourself in the shoes of the disciples for those few hours that that went down? Have you ever done that? Like, what must that have been like for them? What was going on in their heads? What was going on in their hearts? What was going on in their thoughts? What were they feeling, experiencing, as they sunk lower and lower into the shadows of that crowd that was watching this? This wasn't supposed to happen. This wasn't supposed to happen. This is a random thread, and I don't like it. It shouldn't even be here. Nothing that Jesus told us about can happen now. All those things that he said he was going to do can't be done now. A spear just went into his side. He's done. Right? It's all lost. It's all failed. And then three days later, a tomb's empty. Forty days later, an ascension happens. They watch bodily Jesus ascend to the Father in front of their eyes. Seven days after that, Pentecost happens. 
the Spirit of God falls on those men in a way that would forever change them. And it just builds and it builds and it builds as all the turmoil and defeat and sorrow of the cross becomes before their eyes a glorious tapestry of triumph and victory and power. How? Because it was all planned by God. Every bit of it. Acts, 20, Acts chapter 4, 27 and 28, truly in this city, Peter says as he's, as he's praying to the Father, truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. That's pretty clear. Here's God behind it all, pulling every string, pulling every thread that appears to be random, but proves to be perfect in its time, beautiful in its time. I hope you guys can see this. God is big. Below the needlework, it looks wrong, and it looks disastrous, and it looks arbitrary, but above the needlework, it's intentional, and it's purposeful, and it's perfect. A commentator named Herbert Schlossberg interesting name. One said, the kingdom of God advances from triumph to triumph, every last one of them cleverly disguised as a disaster. Seems that way sometimes, doesn't it? Why? So that man cannot find out the perfect workings of God until the time of its grand reveal. The tail end of verse 15, the very, very end of it, is telling us once more that God is taking everything that's been done, everything that's behind, everything in the past, all that may have seemed to us to be meaningless tragedy and disaster, and he's recovering all of it for what will be. This is good news. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God of meaning. This is the God that is worthy of our worship and fear and trust. Lord, we thank you um, that you don't um, shortchange us once again in what you reveal to us. Um, we thank you that, um, that you don't lie to us, but that um, you, are, um, you have no reason to be ashamed of who you are. You are who you are, just like you say. You declare that, God, and I believe and I receive that. Even if I don't always understand that, even if I don't always agree with it, even if, if I think there would be a better way for you to do what you're doing, God, um, it's, it's all silliness. I know that. I trust you. I believe you. I know that everything that you're doing for reasons beyond me are things that are going to turn out, that are going to prove themselves to be more glorious than I ever, ever could have imagined. And so we thank you, God, that you know what you're doing. We thank you that you can be trusted. We thank you that there's nothing lost on the world right now or things that have happened, that there's nothing random, that there's nothing meaningless, that you are redeeming everything for the glory of your name throughout all eternity, God. And I want to be there. I want to glorify your name for what you're doing. I can't wait to see what it is that you've been creating this whole time. And so we thank you. We thank you for your power. We thank you that you're not a weak God or a helpless God or a limited God. But that, that what you created is in no way bigger and stronger than you. You are the boss. And we thank you that you're worthy of our worship because of that. In Jesus' name, amen.
Guys, I love you. Thank you for, um, that was long and a little warm, I know. So thank you for chilling with me and being patient.